Hey everyone, you're listening to Code Switch. I'm B.A. Parker. To be young and to have principles is a scary thing. You don't know what the outcome will be, what it'll cost. Today, I want to share with you the story of a group of young Black men who paid an immeasurable price for choosing to stand up for themselves. The Black 14 were football players at the University of Wyoming back in 1969, and they decided to take a stand against the racist treatment they were experiencing at a football game, and that choice changed their lives forever. The episode you're about to hear is from the BBC's podcast called Amazing Sports Stories, and it's the first in a special four-part series that I got to host for them called The Black 14. And when you're done with this installment, you can find the rest of the series over the next few weeks on the BBC website or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains lived experiences which involve the use of strong racist language. For listeners outside of the United States or Canada, this episode contains many references to football. On this occasion, we aren't talking about the spherical version. It's not soccer. It's American football. Helmets, shoulder pads, and so on. The gridiron is the term for a football field. Tony McGee and I are the, are the only two that were actually in the game that was the catalyst for this whole initiative. So you're the OG. I'm one of the OGs, me and, me and McGee. <laughs> this is Guillermo Hysaw. He used to go by Willie, back when he was 19 years old, the age he was when our story starts. But it's Guillermo these days, now that he's in his 70s. 19-year-old Willie is an intense, competitive guy. He's small for a football player, but makes up for it with a kind of bubbling, highly taut energy. He likes to hit and be hit and jump up again for the next play. It's the fall of 1968 in the clear high air of clean-cut Provo, Utah. It's the home of Brigham Young University, BYU. Guillermo's unlucky opponents for the day. He plays for the University of Wyoming Cowboys football team, and they're taking on Brigham Young and BYU Stadium. We were getting beat. We got that surge of energy, and we won the game, right? So it was a squeaker. It's in a stunning setting, the Rocky Mountains framing the small town. It ought to be amazing for Guillermo. He's young and ready for anything. Like any competitor, he's always chasing a win. And this is a big one. It's a moment. But he's also black, and it's 1968, and Provo is determined to make it clear that he's not welcome. Typically... The nigger calling and gouging that happens when you get tackled was commonplace. At that time, during this 1968 game, Guillermo is one of five African-American football players on the Cowboys team. The game's over. We're cheering on the sideline. Even before that, in the game itself, Tony McGee had been complaining to the official about the excess gouging and and nigger calling and choking and what have you in the piles when we get tackled. The officials would say, oh, just shut up and play the game. They weren't calling any fouls or penalties. So we're cheering on the sideline, won the game. Normally you walk parallel, perpendicular to the other team, shaking hands after the game, right? We look across the field, 
and everybody's gone. The whole football team, coaches, everybody's gone. We're thinking, what happened? You know, so I know we we won the game. Are they, you know, that bad a sportsman that they're not going to, you know, acknowledge it? And so we start to run across the field to go to the locker room. They turn the sprinklers on, and we had to run through the water. Now, mind you, the whole football team, not just the five black players, had to run through the water to get to the locker room. Even in victory, Guillermo and the rest of the black cowboys receive nicks to their dignity as much as they try to ignore them. Guillermo and his teammates don't have a huge reaction at the time. They just get the hell out of Provo. But they don't forget it. And that day in 1968 would spark something. It's going to change Guillermo's life. It's going to change his teammates' lives. It's going to bring the football team they play for crashing down and wreck it for more than 50 years. And it's going to put him and 13 other young black men on a collision course with America. In the end, it's going to make them legends. Eight of those 14 players are going to tell us that story. From the BBC World Service, this is Amazing Sports Stories. This is a new four-part season, The Black 14. I'm B.A. Parker. I'm a writer, audio producer, and co-host of Code Switch, the show about race and identity on National Public Radio in the U.S. Episode 1, Little Laramie. Between the 1968 and 1969 seasons, the number of Black players on the Wyoming Cowboys football team grew from 5 to 14. For the new arrivals, their new home was Laramie, Wyoming, in America's Northwest. They descended from all four corners of a country heaving with change. The 1960s in the United States saw people taking action. Racism, sexism, and war had pushed a generation to its breaking point, and now they were pushing back. This is St. James's Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Tonight, it's the rallying center of the equality movement. In 1962, James Meredith became the first African-American student to enroll at the racially segregated University of Mississippi. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. I would like to take this opportunity to lead all of us in prayer for Martin Luther King and the future of all civil rights movements. At the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, The same year the Cowboys played Brigham Young, African-American athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists in solidarity with other oppressed black people. It was black dignity, and I'm proud I've done it, and don't tell them what I'll do if I get up there next time. But new laws, new movements, new ideas seemed to prove that real change wasn't so far away, as long as you were willing to stand up and fight for it. America was at a boiling point. Laramie, Wyoming, not so much. As athletes on sports scholarships at the University of Wyoming, Guillermo and his 13 black teammates weren't just the only black players on the team. They were among the only black people in a very white state. I'm John Griffin. I'm from a little town in the San Fernando Valley of California called San Fernando. And I'm a member of the Black 14. 
John was 21, one of the older players and one of the stars of the team, and another leader. He was softer spoken than the brash Guillermo and more diplomatic. He was a born peacekeeper, and the others respected him, not least because of how brilliantly he played. He was naturally confident, seemingly always at ease, but he was a long way from home. What were your first impressions of Laramie when you got there? It was different, I must say. Everything around the university are plains with uh, pronghorn, antelope. The university is beautiful, but my focus primarily was playing football. Did you feel any difference being one of like the few black students at that time at the university? I didn't. I didn't. You know, we got to know the Black Student Alliance students. Uh, I got to know my teammates pretty well. And, and all the brothers, we, you know, there were 14 of us, so we just hung out together. So we had a nice little community built in. So, and we knew some of the white players. They were good guys. You know, but we didn't, we didn't hang around with the white players. Not at all? One. Dear friend of mine by the name of George Herrick. There was only one player that I hung around with. I don't think we realized what the true flavor of Wyoming was back in 1969. What was the flavor of Wyoming in 1969? Well, it was a very, it was a red state before it became a red state. How's that? John means more conservative. Laramie was warm, friendly, and hospitable. The people were generous and nice. But there was always this feeling for these young men so far from the communities they'd grown up in, that that only ran so deep. That there was a way to behave, and if they broke some unwritten rule, they'd see a different face of this small and gentle city. What were your first impressions of Laramie when you got there? Fear, and why am I here? (laughs) That's Tony McGee. Guillermo mentioned him earlier, He was one of the other African-American players at the Brigham Young game in 1968. Tony was the large to Guillermo's little. He was six foot four and weighed well over 100 kilos. That's 200 pounds. He was used to small towns. He came from one, in Michigan, in America's Midwest. But he was nervous the second he got to Laramie. Michigan is busy, but in Wyoming... You're always stranded in what seems like an impossible expanse of space. You see nothing but land and steers and cows and and mountains. Some of the most beautiful country you'll ever see. Still, he was optimistic. He had a scholarship to play for a famously great team, and he was ambitious. All the coaches knew the players, and all the players knew each other. There were not many African-Americans on that team, but at the same time, the ones that were on there were pretty good players, and a lot of them got opportunity to go pro. So I really liked the fit. Hi, I'm Joe Williams. I go by JW, but I'm Joe Williams. I'm from uh, Dallas, Texas. Joe was another teammate and one of the captains on the team. He was a polite gentleman from the South with manners that belied his killer instinct on the field. What were your first impressions of Laramie? It was a complete culture shock. You hear me? (laughs) I mean, uh, being from East Texas, I mean, never being more than 44 above sea level, and then to go to Wyoming where you're 7,200 feet above sea level, to see mountains, to go to a predominantly uh, all-white school, it was something special. The city was fantastic, fantastic. 
the football team was the center of everything. Everybody knew that if you were there and then if you were of African-American descent, then, of course, you were in some kind of sports. Man, when I first got to Wyoming, it was very beautiful. The mountains, the landscape, just the total atmosphere was nice. You know, I hadn't been that far west. Lionel Grimes was from the town of Alliance, Ohio. And the people were friendly. I mean, we were there. We were part of a, the Wyoming Cowboys. But the players did experience some ignorance and racism in Laramie. I did get some strange comments when I was there, which was weird to me being in 1969, 1970, where some people had never seen black people. The funniest thing I think that ever happened to me was uh, at midnight one time. I kept seeing this young man look at my rear end, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And so finally, I just asked him, I said, man, what's, what's going on, man? I noticed you keep looking and it's approaching midnight. What's going on? He said, well, he had been told that black people had tails and that they popped out at midnight. And he was looking to see where mine was. And I looked at this dude and I said, man, you're not only ignorant, you're stupid. So just a couple incidents. Other than that, it was a very pleasant place to be. What year did you start at the University of Wyoming? I started at the University of Wyoming in 1968. Ron Hill hails from Bessemer, Alabama, in the Deep South. Alabama was the home of Martin Luther King Jr. and the birthplace of the Civil Rights Movement. As part of growing up in the Deep South, Ron attended schools segregated by race. You know, everybody's thinking, well, the hard part is living in the South. Not true. That's a fallacy. It's an American problem. I was coming from the library one night and it was snowing, come across the street, and three white dudes in a car cross the intersection, and he yells out, nigga, go home. This is in Laramie? Yes, ma'am, this is in Laramie. The car was going along in the snow, and I was running in the snow. I was running along right behind it. I'm splashing snow all over the place. And I caught up with those guys. And I just told them, blacks don't want to hear that. Blacks don't want to hear you blaspheme us because, because we're black. And Melvin Hamilton, though he said we can call him Mel, had come to Laramie straight from the Army. What were your first impressions of Laramie? Oh, my God. My <laughs> first of all, I, I noticed the lack of diversity immediately. So I said, what have I done? The second thing, it was cold as hell. And I said, what have I done? The chancellor of the university's Black Student Alliance, Willie Black, was interviewed about this time at Wyoming years later. When we arrived at the university, we were appalled that Black students didn't feel comfortable eating in the main cafeteria. So the Black students would, would go downstairs, and that's where you'd find them. I'd, I'd say, oh, my goodness. I'd say, this is, this is awful. And there was no social place for them. they talk about hanging outside till they go get tired and go home. There was just no place for them. There were no social activities they could participate in. So we formed the organization, the uh, Black Student Alliance. For the most part, though, the players could try and focus on what they were there to do, play football. Well, you know, football was like the military to me. Once you're in a situation where you all have similar goals, it seems like race doesn't matter. And so being the only one that looks like me isn't as important anymore because you have that goal to obtain. 
Perhaps initially, race didn't seem to matter within the team. But the reality of the 1960s was about to get in the way. Football for a college player is like a job. But for many of the Black players, it meant a lot more. It was something they truly loved, something that was worth the isolation and hardship of moving across the country. And in football, for these young men, there was a path to a better life, a scholarship, a university degree, and the future that came with it. Especially for Ron Hill from America's Deep South. And the biggest thing that I have ever done in my life, Ms. Parker, was to be able to tell my parents, you don't have to pay nothing for me to go to school. All I got to do is keep it up. You didn't have to pay anything? No, ma'am. That was my total objective for being there. I wanted to get education, want my parents to see me get education and not pay one, they not pay one penny. College football in the U.S. is the sport with the strongest regional loyalties. In a town like Laramie, the team is a second religion, and the Saturday games are church, complete with the singing, the community, the ecstasy. Laramie's War Memorial Stadium holds almost as many people as live in the town. People descend from all over the state to fill out the congregation. The players, if not gods, were at least apostles. For now, they were keeping their heads down, doing their work, going to practice, earning their way. Before a few hours each week, they became the most important people in the state, as former Army man Mel Hamilton puts it. Ms. Parker, Wyoming University is the only four-year institution in the state. They make their football team the greatest asset that they have. And they love their football team. If the team is winning, the coach could run for governor and win. And in 1969, the team was good, really good. Out of hundreds of colleges, they were ranked 12th in the whole country. John Griffin, the calm and confident Californian, remembers game day in Laramie. Cowboy football is the only big thing in Wyoming. And on any given day during the season, you can look out your window. We lived in, in McIntyre Hall, which was where the football team lived. And we were probably on the ninth floor, and you could see in all directions cars coming in at 8 o'clock in the morning for a 1.30 start. So it made me aware then how important cowboy football is. And everybody treated us very, very well, you know, because they all wanted to know a Cowboy football player. I know that, well, being a football player on the Cowboys football team is a pretty big deal in Wyoming. Did you feel like there was a special status with being a football player in that town? Yeah, it had to be a great football town because there was nothing else. Here's player Guillermo Hysaw. That was what put them on the map was their football program. They had designed that 1969 team as the best ever. Our motto was, anytime you played against us, you're in for a fight. Every Saturday, 
60 minutes, you better be ready because we're going to bring it to you. We're going to have the W on the win column as we leave the field. If I wasn't a football player, I don't know how friendly people would have been to me. This is Ted Williams. He describes himself as the quiet one in the bunch. I know it's that right away. But soon as you know, you're a football player, everybody wants to talk to you, everybody wants to shake your hand, how great a job you're doing. Being a Wyoming cowboy might have meant you were a big name on campus, but being an African-American cowboy, of course, meant something a little different to being a white cowboy, even down to how head coach, Coach Lloyd Eaton, treated you. Lloyd Eaton was a legend in Wyoming. He had a warm, kind of doughy face. He would wear a baseball cap, tuck a polo shirt into his khakis, and bark orders from the sidelines. He was already in his 50s, but almost alarmingly fit, and a broad fatherly smile concealed an intense competitor and a stickler for the rules, who saw discipline as the key to victory. I wanted to talk to you a bit about Coach Eaton. Oh, the drill, um, the drill sergeant? Eaton was the coach that got them to that point where they had started being ranked nationally. And that was a first for University of Wyoming. And so it was uh, quite an experience being there and knowing that you're amongst the best. I felt like if you like black, they wanted uh, more out of us. It seemed like I was drilled harder, I think, than anybody else, I felt. He threw balls at you, made drills. If you dropped the ball, he made, like, guys line up. You got to go through, and they slap. You know, actually almost punching you and slapping the ball out of your hand. I felt like I was treated pretty rough. More, you know, like the other guys, you know, the other white guys, I guess. Who were your friends on the team? Did you have any friends on the team? You mean black, white? Black, white, either or. Oh, yeah, all the all the brothers on the team were, were pretty kosher. There was never a dislike for any particular one. But during the practices and the scrimmages, some of the players got a chance to cheap shot you. If we practice and uh, the coach says, okay, everybody half speed, so you, you think you going half speed. Then you step up there and here come this this big white dude just, boom, just plastered you and run you down. The coaches don't say anything. So the next time he did it, then I, I retaliated. And the coach says, you get out of here. You back on out of here. You know, I was protecting myself. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't giving up my arms and limbs to play this game. But it was stuff like that that, that made you think seriously about what am I doing here? It was this kind of environment that helped make it obvious to the players when they played Brigham Young in Provo, Utah the previous year. There wasn't much room to speak out. We've been playing uh, BYU for a number of years. Joe Williams. Every time we go to BYU, we couldn't stay in the city. We had to stay outside the city because the, the university had African-American players, black players on the team. And when we were on the field, um, there was some antics that were always going on. But the one thing that stood out more than anything else is uh, that when we finished the game, they'd turn on the water sprinklers, you know, let's wash all this evil off the field. Brigham Young University is named after the second president of the Church of Latter-day Saints, the official name for the Mormons. 
His followers and their descendants, mostly based in Utah, had tight-knit communities that put his teachings at the center of their institutions, including their flagship university. For the towering Tony McGee, the memory of the treatment of the black players on BYU's home turf the previous year still rang in his mind. I remember the last game I played up there. A guy jumped in the back of my legs, and I went up to one of the officials and said, look, he's doing this, jumping in the back of my legs, and I don't want to. He said, shut up and play ball. This is what the official told me. But that was the experience I had with um, BYU. But it wasn't just the Wyoming players who had an issue with Brigham Young. Other college teams took issue with one of the policies of the Church of Latter-day Saints. The policy back then was African-Americans were not allowed to become priests in the church. African-American women could not enter the church. That was the issue across the country was that all the Black Student Unions, along with the Black Student Alliances, we're going to do something in sympathy to protest against the Latter-day Saints policies. President of the Black Student Alliance, Willie Black, spoke about this in 1993. Willie, when, when did your involvement on this whole thing start? Uh, can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what the, happened? The, uh, so the story was that somewhere along the line, I became aware that the Mormon church owned BYU. And I also quite accidentally became aware of their policies regarding their black membership. Mel Hamilton. Ms. Parker, keep in mind that this is in the middle of the national revolution, I called it, the social revolution, where blacks are doing their thing and wanting to be recognized and fighting for what we deserve. So now I view this as my time. My time to fight is my time to give what I can to the revolution. And so I said, we've got to do something. Everybody said, we've got to do something. A number of teams across the country who were slated to play BYU were planning protests. Joe Williams. And it just so happens uh, through the luck of the draw that we were the next team up that the BYU was playing when everybody across the WAC decided that we were going to protest. The WAC, or Western Athletic Conference, is a college football league in the west of the USA. Now, this was just one of many protests that happened to BYU. BYU's game at the University of Wyoming was scheduled for the 18th of October, 1969. The Black Student Alliance and the Black Players came together to decide if and how they wanted to make a stand. Tall Tony McGee remembers making the decision to protest. Then this proposition was put to us by the Black Student Alliance. They wanted to protest the way BYU felt about African Americans. Now, this is where the story splits. That is what they say we were protesting to do. We were really protesting at that time our treatment on the field. Lionel Grimes. And we said we had no problems with what they believed or didn't believe. Religion has no place on the football field anyway. Our problems were how some of the athletes were treated in a previous game. We didn't like the idea of, you know, the sprinklers being turned on us. We didn't like the idea of things that were being said in the stands. So at some point, uh, there had to be a stoppage to that. We went to all the players and we had a meeting. We told the individuals 
that were married that they should not be a part of this because they can't afford to lose their scholarship and uh, that they had wives and they had responsibilities. They didn't have to be a part, but everybody wanted to be a part anyway. So we went among ourselves away from the Black Students Alliance meeting and we discussed what it was that we wanted to do. And we came up with the Black Armbands because it was a, a universal symbol of death, depression. Everybody would understand what the Black Armbands meant. And so that's what we decided to do. Wearing black armbands wouldn't have just been a powerful symbol. It meant taking their discontent public and bringing politics onto the field. And it meant telling their all-powerful coach that they were thinking about something more than football. We had to ask the coach for permission to be able to do that. And so my dear friend Tony McGee says, you know, we've got to talk to the coach about this. We can't just arbitrarily help you guys out without talking to the coach about it. And that's what we did. Was Eaton aware of what was happening during that game? What, no. what was happening with y'all? Absolutely not. And that's what we went over there to tell him and say, Coach, this is why we want to wear armbands in the game to protest and demonstrate, not with our black skins, because that was the object and the locus of the whole issue to begin with, but to say that your views have no place on the gridiron, period. That was it. So a couple of days before the game against BYU, the 14 African-American footballers came to a decision. They would go and ask head coach Lloyd Eaton if they might show solidarity with the Black Student Alliance's protest and ask him if they could wear black armbands during the game. They were Wyoming Cowboys. They were known figures on campus and in the whole state. Their position came with an importance and symbolism that was almost bigger than themselves. That gave them the power to make a difference. But it's clear from my conversations with many of the guys, the priority was first and foremost to football. They weren't going to do anything without first clearing it with Coach Eaton. It was a gamble. Their coach was stern, but he cared about keeping the team together. They hoped he would be sympathetic, especially to a protest that was low-key and against a team that had treated them with such disdain the previous year. Still, they knew as soon as the black armband went on, there would be no going back. But none of the 14 black players could have predicted what happened next. Walking over, we were very jittery, I guess the word is. Lloyd Eaton could go anyway. We knew that he could do anything. That's next time on The Black 14. This is episode one of four. And if you're enjoying the story, you know what we're going to say. Please do rate us, leave reviews where you can, and talk about us on social media. It will really help us spread the word about The Black 14. You can follow or subscribe to get the rest of the series and all other stories automatically. We'll have new episodes weekly. This season of Amazing Sports Stories is a whistle-down production for the BBC World Service. The lead producer is Sasha Edie Lintner, and the producer is Jill Achiniku. With thanks to Jasmine Bayoumi for story development. 
The executive producer is Robert Nicholson. For the BBC World Service, the senior producer is Kat Collins. The sports commissioning editor is Anna Doble. And the podcast commissioning editor is John Monell. Thanks to the University of Wyoming American Heritage Center, Irene L. Kootenan Schubert, Black 14 Collection, and the Wyoming State Archives for use of their archives.